Hey everyone, it's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. I'm Carly. And today we are joined by a very special guest. Uh, Zach Vasquez is here in the Hit Factory with us today. Zach, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Zach, where can, can people find some of your work? Um, my work gets published pretty regularly in The Guardian, um, also on the sites Crime Reads, uh, Crooked Marquee, uh, I've written for Bright Wall, Dark Room, um, Little White Lies, a couple other places like that. And today we are talking about a very special film, very exciting film, the kind of mid-budget thriller that doesn't really get made anymore. Um, this one is from 1997. It is The Edge, starring Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Um, but of course, the sort of unbilled star and guiding force behind the film is uh, is its screenwriter, none other than famous uh, playwright and, of course, screenwriter David Mamet. Um, and when we were coming to an, and arriving at a selection for today's conversation, Zach, you had offered up a, a, a couple of David Mamet uh, works, and I, I'm just curious if, if you could give us a little bit of background uh, in terms of your relationship with with him and uh, and his his oeuvre. <laughs> Sure. Um, so I can't remember necessarily where I would have first heard of David Mamet. It was sometime in my teens. I was aware of him as a writer. I was aware of him as like this guy that was a famous playwright and uh, movie writer and director. But I don't think I had really seen any of his work. Um, and the first thing I remember was seeing the trailer for Heist. Um, which is a movie that I have since come to love. But at the time, the trailer for that makes it seem like a very silly movie because the dialogue that they like use in that trailer, um, which is built all to around Mamet, is it's it's like the most Mamety dialogue ever. It almost seems like a parody. There's like the, fa <laughs> the famous line, uh, you know, that's everyone wants money. That's why they call it money. And I remember thinking at the time, like, what? Who is this guy? Like, why is he... <laughs> considered brilliant what the hell does that line even mean uh but you know eventually it's something about it stayed with me so i was always interested and then eventually at some point i would have seen the movie or read the play of glengarry glenn ross i can't remember which came first i remember we read that play in a drama writing class that i had at, in college at san francisco state um so I, but I can't, I, I'm sure I would have seen the movie before that. No, I actually, I know for a fact I would have, because by that time I probably had gotten pretty into Mamet. Um, but that might've been the first time I read anything of his. Um, but I definitely, once I was in college, I, I kind of went down a rabbit hole and tried to see and read everything. And pretty much up until through Red Belt, I have seen almost everything. He's definitely everything he's directed and written. I've seen most of the movies he's written, but there's a couple that I know do not have great reputations uh, that I have not seen. Like I haven't seen the one with uh, De Niro and Sean Penn where they're dresses nuns, I think. Uh, there's like a nuns on the run movie. I don't even remember. Or maybe they're priests. I'd be confusing it with something else. <laughs> um, I haven't seen that. There's a couple like that that I haven't seen, but all of the major ones I've seen. And I've read a good amount of his published work, play plays, and a couple of his novels. And yeah, I mean, I just think the guy is, he's very, he can be a frustrating artist. Um, not all of his work uh, is, you know, it's not all on the same level. Um, but I usually find something in there that is 
worth uh, reading or worth watching. Uh, and I mean, as far as the dire- directing goes, I, I think he was be- pretty much batting 100 up until Phil Spector. Um, <laughs> I-, I don't think there's a bad movie in his filmography as a writer-director until you get there. Um, and I should probably even give that movie another chance. I've only seen it the once. Uh, I remember thinking that one was a bit too miscalibrated. But um, yeah, uh, so he's just one of my favorite artists. Um, he's a very frustrating person because politically he's about as far as away as for me as you can get on most things. He 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 was never someone you could accuse of being a bleeding heart. But in the last ten or so, no, actually, at this point. Yeah, longer than that. Ever since Obama uh, came along, he is, he made a very hard right turn, which I don't usually care anything about an artist's politics, um, personally. His has come into his work a little bit more in the books that he's written than the movies. I haven't really kept up with too many of the more recent plays. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's my take on Mamet. Um, I, I still, still love the guy. would not want to talk politics with him, but... Um, <laughs> I will. I would definitely see um, still, you know, anything that he put out uh, that I could. Um, you know, if I if I lived in New York, I'd go see his plays. But yeah, he is really this fascinatingly frustrating kind of confounding figure. Um, what was the name of his book? With the secret knowledge was the secret knowledge was? was the one he expanded from an essay called "Why I'm No Longer a Brain Dead Liberal." Which I've read, and it's like I it's it's not just that I disagree with it. It's a bad essay. You know, his 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 politics uh, when it comes to stuff like that are so far removed from the stuff he writes about. Sometimes, like I don't understand. I get that he has always been uh, conservative, and that's very obvious in most of his stuff. And a lot of that was a reaction against what in the eighties and nineties was political correctness. Now it would be cancel culture. And honestly, I, I tend to agree with him on a lot of that stuff. I don't buy I don't abide by the like cancel culture narrative. I think it's mm-hmm. obviously a lot of a right wing canard, but I do think that the sensitivities of people politically and culturally when put against art, I usually take the side of the, the artist and the transgressive stuff. So I agree with him on that. But he he rode that into a very different place. And it's hard for me to fathom how a guy who is most famous for writing plays and movies about con men where the psychology of the con artist is so astute and so insightful can then be taken in by people like sarah palin and donald donald trump especially but like i just don't get it um that's what frustrates me more than the fact that i just don't agree with him uh but and uh, this is stuff that i'm sure we'll get into because the edge is a very what makes it so interesting and weird is that there's a lot of politics in it. Yeah, this film is is kind of a fascinating, I mean, very sort of mid to late 90s take here. And and, and even for as sort of apolitical as the read may have been at the time, there there is a lot of that sort of like nascent politics there that that almost kind of transcends the the material into like kind of like a mythic a, a mythical sort of place, you know. Um, but but at the heart of it is is sort of this like ascendance of of a billionaire, right? Of of someone who's already sort of you know materially at in, at the highest point of of status, who also manages to find sort of a an, an inter an inner reprieve as well, and, and and able to to kind of use the challenges he faces to uh, I don't know to to level up. I guess is just a simple way of putting it. Um, it almost feels kind of like Randian in a, a, a 
few ways, more ways than one. Um, but but I don't know if that's everyone's take on it. Um, Zach, would you be able to provide us with with maybe just like a, a quick like back of the box synopsis of the film itself? Sure. So uh, Anthony Hopkins plays a character named Charles Morse, who is, like you said, a billionaire. We don't quite know how he made his fortune. I think it's hinted at that he's like a Wall Street guy, maybe a, um, you know, a Wall Street trader or a venture capitalist, something along those lines. He has just flown in to a cabin in Alaska for his birthday, where he's traveling with his wife, who is a you know, it's, I think it's Ella McPherson. Uh, she's this, you know, drop dead gorgeous supermodel. And along with them is a uh, fashion crew that is there to take pictures of her, uh, you know, against like the Alaskan wilderness. Um, and amongst that party is a guy named Bob, who's the head photographer, the like, you know, the, the, the director of the crew, um, who is played by Alec Baldwin. Uh, at his most Alec Baldwin-y, you know, he's, <laughs> he's very darkly handsome and kind of seedy. And the way that he interacts with Charles, you can tell that he, you know, is, is kind of like always needling him a little bit. Like he's, at, he's polite and everything, but you can tell that there's some tension there. Um, partly because Charles is a very shy man and also a very suspicious man. Like one of the first things we see of him is he's talking to a mechanic at the airport and the mechanic is looking at his wife who's standing by the plane and he makes a you know comment about like i'd like to get my hands on on her and uh charles you know asks like like who, who he's talking about and the guy says the plane he's like the plane <laughs> but you can tell that this is like charles is always suspicious of everyone they want his money or they want his wife um and bob especially is is throwing out red flags Anyway, they get to the cabin, um, and the, like, grizzled cabin keeper there, uh, you know, mentions that, like, there are bears around, so, you know, make sure to watch out for them. Uh, the next day, during the photo shoot, uh, Bob realizes that he needs something else, and he wants to use a guy whose picture is hanging in the cabin, uh, like an, an old Native American guy who lives on the other side of the mountain. So he convinces Charles to go along with him and an assistant uh, named Stephen, who is played by uh, Harold Perrineau, a perennially underrated character actor. You've probably seen him in The Matrix. If you watched Oz um, ever, he was the narrator in that. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so they, they take a short uh, private plane jaunt over the mountain. Um, and at that time, Charles kind of confronts Bob he asks him, like, how you're planning to kill me. And right as he does that, we witness a horrific plane crash that sends their plane uh, crashing down into a freezing lake. The pilot is killed. The other three survive. They are in a place where they know people are not looking for them. They got off course. So Charles realizes that they are, they are lost. And the only way that they're going to survive is if they walk back to where there is land because no one's going to find them. Uh, so then, you know, it starts off what is a, you know, very, you know, basic kind of man lost in the wilderness story. Things get complicated when they realize that a man-eating Kodiak bear <laughs> is straight up stalking them. And that becomes a bigger issue than starving to death or freezing to death or any of that stuff. And as it goes along, it very much becomes a, a kind of an animal's attack movie 
uh, you know, Jaws set in the Alaskan wilderness. And then the last third takes a turn where it turns back into like the film noir that it was at the beginning, where mm-hmm. it then becomes about, you know, uh, these two kind of guys who might be enemies distrusting each other. Um, so it's really, it's a movie that goes all over the place. It's, it's a lot of different movies combined. Um, and it, it, it ta- and even beyond that, it, it, its themes go beyond that. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's a big movie. It is. It's a very big movie. Um, and cannot understate, I think just how visceral, um, the, the filmmaker here, Lee Tamahori makes some of these, these sequences, you know, for, for as much as this, uh, he is playing second fiddle to the words on the page and, and certainly to the, the actors on screen. Like you said, that, that plane crash is just absolutely brutal. The way that, you know, like these, these birds basically are like vaporized into, into sinew and, and crash through the window and uh, just like kind of like the, the carnage of all of it. Even the bear attacks, you know, like um, the uh, sort of inevitable demise of Harold Perrineau's character, the, the ph- photography assistant, um, are rendered with this very intense, very visceral, uh, amount of just sort of, uh, I don't know. It's it, it, not understated. It, it's, it's, but it's very matter of fact. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, and really, really brutal. And, and I think it certainly emphasizes a lot of, as you said, the, the sort of darker themes, these, these, uh, survival kind of instincts, uh, being a necessity of, of such a brutalizing place. I'm curious about Zach, what you think of sort of the the message here, because it, it seems to me that this this film is very in line with a lot of Mamet's work about uh, masculinity and and maybe specifically about this man who is tied at least theoretically and in his his wealth of knowledge to a, a bygone era and figuring out how to sort of survive in in a, a new era in one that doesn't require of him the same skill set as uh, previous sort of frontiersmen and, and uh, these intrepid explorers uh, you needed to possess at a certain time. And uh, I'm, I'm curious what you make of that, of that sort of a messaging or, or that theme that runs through the film. You know, it, one thing that I should mention before going into that is that the thing that defines the character of Charles and that makes him not just uh, your like average Wall, spoiled Wall Street billionaire is he's a legitimate like genius on everything when he shows up to the cabin you know he proves it by like you know he, he's always kind of butting in and like he's he's a know-it-all that's the thing is he's kind of annoyed he kind of annoys everybody with how he just has the answer for everything like how to sight a rifle how to start a fire with ice like what what would be carved on like this old you know native american paddle like what's on the other side like that, that's a thing that the that he gets you know asked and bob is clearly just cannot stand it and his wife humors him and, you know, he, he's, he's a very interesting guy in that way. Cause he, and he's, and he's very polite and he's like the nicest guy until he suspects that you might want something from him. So it, it's, we're not being asked to watch like, you know, if Jordan Belfort got lost in the wilderness <laughs> or, or Gordon Gecko, or it, he's not one of those guys. He's, he's, right. a, he's, he's not Howard Hughes, but he has a little bit of that like reclusiveness to him. And originally the edge, the edge was a title and it doesn't really make any sense because they're, they're, you know, I, I, it's just like a lame standard title that the, the studio put on it because they didn't want to release it under the title that Mamet wrote it as, which is Bookworm. Right. Which is a much better title and gives you, a, it's, it, it's just ironic enough that it, that it's kind of awesome and it gives you uh, a better idea of what kind of character piece you're watching. That being said, I do understand why they're like, we are not selling 
a, a animals attack movie called Bookworm. Like, right. <laughs> I, um, this is all just to say that it's an interesting character because I I see this movie as kind of a turning point in Mamet's career, at least in terms of his movie work. Prior to this, most of the movies, not all of them, uh, you know, kind were about people on the fringes of criminality or straight up criminals. And they were about desperate people and they were about people who fail and, you know, strive and fight for something that they, they can't get. So you think of, you know, the, the salesmen of Glengarry Glen Ross, the like, you know, hustlers and gamblers of uh, House of Games, the petty crooks of American Buffalo, characters like that, you know, kind of more neo-noirish characters, con men, thieves, hustlers, guys like that, women like that, too. And, you know, he, Mamet always would have said that there isn't a political agenda at work there. And I agree with him. I don't think there's a political agenda in, in those movies, but I do think they absolutely work. You can read them as, you know, indictments kind of, of like Reaganomics, certainly mm -hmm. Gary Glenn Ross. I mean, like there's no better summation of Reaganomics in art than, you know, first place is a new Cadillac, second place pair of steak knives, third place, you're fired. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was always what his stuff was about before then. Once you get into the edge, he moves into a different territory where he starts, like before you would say like, maybe his movies are about, I, w I wouldn't say they're about toxic masculinity. I think that is far too simplistic and also a term that I know he would hate. Um, <laughs> but they, you could say that they're like movies about masculinity in crisis, certainly. Once you get to the edge, now it becomes kind of about the ideal of masculinity and like how it, how it should work. So after the edge, you have, you have a brief pit stop with uh, the Winslow boy, which is a fascinating movie, a really good one. And the one that is kind of an outlier in its filmography because it's a PG rated British court drama. It's that doesn't even need to take place in court at any point. It's, it's, it's a very good movie. I very recommend it. Um, but after, not counting that after this, you have, State in Maine, which again, maybe that one doesn't quite count because that's kind of more of a like Capra-esque satire. Uh, but but the ones I'm specifically thinking of are Thief, or I'm sorry, Heist, Spartan, and Red Belt, which are all kind of in line with The Edge in that they're all about characters who are like striving for honor and survival in a corrupt world, and they all triumph. So instead of Glengarry Glen Ross, you know, where the last line is a broken salesman asking, like, you know, saying, like, my daughter, please, and someone telling him, fuck you, you know, Red Belt ends with a guy beating a criminal conspiracy and, and getting, like, you know, a belt from this, like, jujitsu master as honor. Heist ends with, like, the one thief with honor, you know, getting the score and, and you know, getting the better of the people trying to get him. Spartan, uh, you know, about a soldier who, you know, grows a conscience and then, you know, defeats like this shadowy government empire and the edge, uh, you know, this billionaire who has to put his knowledge to use against his enemies and the natural world and comes out, you know, at the end, having been a changed man and killing a bear and surviving betrayal and all, all this stuff. So, yeah, I think uh, it speaks towards also Mamet's kind of political turn because beforehand, you know, he was looking at the, the, the failures of money and masculinity in like modern society, he does this hard right turn. And now he's kind of writing this stuff about like how we should be in society, what honor looks like. And his movies become more mythical. Uh, they become a little bit more 
epic in their themes, if not necessarily their scope. The Edge is by far the, the like biggest scope of any any movie that he uh, wrote that I can think of. Maybe uh, The Untouchables might might be that. It's it's definitely a, a major turning point in his career. I really like what you're saying here, Zach, about tracking the arc of Mamet's own politics um, through the course of his filmmaking uh, over over this decade in particular, which I think is a formative one um, in a lot of reason in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I found myself considering watching The Edge, and I I think it's sort of you know, run, runs parallel to this idea of, you know, the sort of mythic masculinity that you're talking about, or perhaps is, is contained in it. It's sort of the new, it's the post-industrial version of it. But this idea that came to fruition in the 90s, particularly as the technocracy really um, became, you know, sort of at the forefront of not just cultural, but also our political postures and, and architecture. And we started to see these, these billionaire types, you know, more at the, at the front and center of society. And the, the figure of Charles is an interesting one because I found contained in him or exemplified in him, this idea that's still pervasive to this day of, you know, this sort of credentialed, genius savior of all of society, um, you know, solving the problems of society's ills, this very technical intellectual type who is above all else, not emotional, but professional. And that these are the leaders of the future. These are the innovators. These are the people that are going to carry us through economic inequality and climate crisis and, you know, government is not the problem here really it's a lack of innovation <laughs> that is is causing all of our all of our problems and that these are, are our saviors and we see this today in figures like Elon Musk <laughs> and which we can certainly get into i know you you've got some things to say about it <laughs> um and so i i found myself sort of wrestling with this it is a myth this idea of the sympathetic billionaire who is above all else, a thinker, a doer, uh, a risk taker, but is, you know, uh, maybe sort of lacking some of the emotional depth um, that we might want from them. And, and so I just, I found it interesting that this was a, to me, a very clear, that sort of mythic figure was in in very clear relief in this movie in the figure of Anthony Hopkins character Charles. Yeah, it definitely is and I think Mamet is definitely someone who ascribes to the great man of history mm-hmm. way of thinking. That being said, I will say that I think that him placing a billionaire at the center of the story works on a couple other levels though. I think one of them is like, okay, how can we take this story and make it even more surprising and a little bit more like interesting and even in a way transgressive than your standard man lost in the wilderness? And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, who 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 is the least likely person to survive in the wilderness if you think of it? And it's like, what about like a Wall Street billionaire? Because <laughs> that's the thing is like Charles is he you know he he clearly has some you know connections to that class of billionaire that we're starting innovator that we're starting to see more and more in the 90s 
But he's more Bill Gates than Howard Hughes. This is not right. a rough and tumble guy. This is not a captain of industry type. He's he's not a Superman. He's not like blustery and big and like I a leader. He doesn't seem like a leader of men at all. That's the thing. Is he's a nerd. He is shy. Even around his wife in private, you see him. He's like a, he's like a schoolboy. You know, he's he he seems soft and frail, kind of. And I mean, casting Anthony Hopkins in that role is a stroke of genius. Um, you know, I had read that like at one point De Niro was considered for it, and I could see De Niro delivering those lines. I could see him playing a little more reserved. I can see how he would do it, but there is something that is always going to be tough about De Niro. And watching De Niro in that role, you would get the sense this is a guy from a blue collar background who made right. on this, and that's why. But watching Hopkins, you're like, no, this is a sheltered English guy. This guy should not be the one that's like surviving in the wilderness. It's one thing to like you know, do good on the stock, do well at the stock market. But like making fire from ice is not something this guy should be able to do. And that I think makes for a much more surprising turn of events, you know, than, than if you had put uh, Robert Redford as a billionaire and have, you know, in there, someone more masculine and handsome and rugged. Uh, so I like the way that Mamet is playing with that idea. And I like that there's an irony to it. You know, one of the recurring lines throughout the movie is never feel sorry for a guy who owns a plane. <laughs> uh, and that, but the movie's asking you to do that. It's asking you to sympathize with a guy who owns, you know, a Learjet. So I, I, I do think that there is some, there is like a bit of like some like you know like a, a little transgressive, uh, you know, kind of thing at work there that, that I appreciate. I also think, and I am hesitant to psychoanalyze artists, but I do think going back to the way that this stands is like a change in his, you know, interests as a writer. I also think that there is some, this is kind of a wish fulfillment movie as mm. well as a mm-hmm. bit of a like him dealing with a, like some self-doubt himself because mm-hmm. Mamet is a guy who will always talk about all of the like masculine interests that he has, right? He's a black belt in jujitsu. You know, he, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a gun guy. He, he talks about like, you know, being a marksman. Uh, he's a woodworker. He talks about, you know, doing you know work. He's always constantly showing himself as the type of person that would have the knowledge to survive in a situation like this, like Charles. Yet, he's a little bit more like Bob, if you look at it, right? Like, it's, it's Bob is, for all intents and purposes, a movie director, right? Mm-hmm. The way we see him before they get lost. Like, that's his job. He's a, but he's a fashion photographer. Mamet is a guy who came from the theater before he was in the movies. So, you know, watching Bob and Charles, it's like watching the Mamet's ideal of himself, right? Like, here are all the skills that I've amassed over life. If I were put in the situation, here's what I could do. But it's also him putting a character who's way closer to like him on paper, which is Bob, a guy who, you know, comes from the only industry that is maybe considered less masculine than the theater, which is the industry. And watching those two people battle it out. And at the end of it, you know, spoilers, I'm sure everyone's seen the movie, but like Bob dies, he has to die. And Charles tries to like save him even after he's tried to kill him. So, you know, there's a way to look at this as like the, the two sides of Mamet's, you know, the person he wants to be and the person he knows he is and him kind of sacrificing, killing the, the, the part of him that he doesn't like in an attempt to elevate the person himself to the status and the person that he wants to be. And then, you know, the fact that he's also an uber cap, I, I don't know if he's an, he certainly is a representation of an uber capitalist, right? Like, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it would be fair to say, you know, Charles's personal politics never come in, but the guy's clearly not a socialist. Uh, I I just would hesitate calling him an uber capitalist as though he's like some sort of like, 
you know, it's not like he goes off about like the greatness of capitalism or anything at that point. But, you know, him being a billionaire also speaks, I think, to uh, Mamet's, you know, turn more into conservative politics as well. Yeah. And uh, you answered my next question, which was going to be exactly that, you know, whether or not you you felt like Charles was uh, intended to be something of a, a proxy or, or rather like an ideal uh, that Mamet felt he he embodied in some ways and and sought to uh, sought to reach greater heights within. And, and I think that that's actually like a, a spot on analysis, you know, if we're attempting to psychoanalyze here that it is. Uh, him, you know, literally and, and metaphysically, like within the context of the film, killing off the the parts of him that are um, those sh- shedding those sort of liberal layers that that he has over the years. Um, you you made me recall two moments in the film that uh, that were of note that I definitely had a, a reaction to. The first is the explicit inversion of the "go make me a sandwich." Uh, cliche um, where El McPherson is like in bed resting and uh, and sort of tells An- uh, Anthony Hopkins tells, tells Charles to to go and do the same you know we we learn that it's it's meant as sort of a, a way to uh, disarm him and, and and get him to go downstairs so that they can surprise him for a for a birthday party in the most horrifying way by yes. the way like <laughs> That scene is so scary and effective. It really is. And the way that Hopkins reacts to it is so legitimate. It's so believable. Like it's it's he he reacts in a terror that is legitimately embarrassing, but that everyone in that situation would. Yeah, and I love that he he does the thing that would happen in real life, which is you don't just flip a switch and go from that fight or flight mode into I'm relaxing and having cake like he's still visibly shaken the entire time they're you know lumping all this praise on him and showering him with gifts he's he's awkward because he's an awkward person but he's also still recovering from the terror of of facing down what he thought was a real bear yeah and that's also the scene where you get though the first sense of his like inherent decency though because he does you see him work to like shake off the embarrassment and the anger and like be a good host and not let it get to him. And Bob comments on that later when they're right before the plane goes down, you know, he says like, I'll tell you what, the way you reacted to that, like impressed me. Like you, it was an embarrassing moment and you, you handled it well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that, that more than honestly, anything else is kind of the thing that defines his character and allows him to survive is he takes things in stride and thinks his way through them rather than giving in to emotion. And like that makes for a character that on paper or maybe first viewing seems cold and detached and maybe a little bit like even kind of a Mary Sue, you know, like, (laughs) but like the more you watch it, the more you get, and cause there are things that come in that also go against that. Like he does get frustrated in the movie. His knowledge isn't perfect. He, he does let emotion get to him at times. Uh, but what makes him a legitimate hero, his superpower, if you will, is his like ability to think his way out of a situation to the benefit of himself and everyone else around him, whether that be, you know, don't calm down. Don't let my anger and embarrassment, you know, make turn this already awkward situation into a, you know, really uncomfortable situation for everyone. Just let it go. Be decent to the people here. Or if it's later, like, I'm going to kill this fucking bear. (laughs) 
I, I totally setting up a deadfall, but I'm not going to give in to what I am feeling right now. Like the lizard brain part of, 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 of my thinking, you know, and he says that as much, he says, you know, the people in the wilderness, there's a line about like, they die of shame. They ask themselves, how did I get in this situation? And they sit down and they die of shame. Whereas they don't do the one thing that would keep them alive, which is thinking. Yeah. And that again, to me, sort of bolsters to some degree, this, this kind of fetishizing of like the intellectual of like the credential, the person who is above all else professional, right. That, that we, that we had particularly in the nineties and that we still have with, with the PMC. And I found it interesting too, that there's that, there's that one line when, you know, it's one of the several standoffs that he and Bob have when Bob is, is going on a rant and he's talking about, you know, you make me sick and uh, you hate Jews and taxes and all this stuff where, you it's know. One of my favorite lines though, like that, it's such a mammoth line. Like that is. It totally a- is. It comes out of nowhere. And it also to me says, like backs up like that Bob is kind of ma- a little bit more mammoth because mammoth is, you know, a very staunch faith, faithful Jewish man. Like he's very staunch, is, is supporter of Israel and he's dealt with this theme a lot in his work. So to have Bob say, you know, what puts you off Jews and taxes, that's, that's, that feels like Mamet being like, this is what I would say in that situation. Oh, 1000%, 1000%. That feels like Mamet coming through, coming through the, the screen for sure. And Bob says something like, of course you people are the ones that run the country. Like no one else can do it. Like you're, you're all so dense or something like that. And Charles says, no, I'm not dense. I just have no imagination. And I just loved that line because it perfectly encapsulates this idea of, of like the thinker, the thinker type who is, you know, he is a professional. He is, he is an intellectual he is, um, you know, composed and and perhaps on the surface cold, but he's not dense. He's just not a wildly charismatic uh, creative type. Yeah. And it's also, I think, about a man in that situation realizing that he has dedicated his life previous to this to something that kind of is without meaning mm-hmm. um, because he has that line at one point of like, I'm going to change my life as he's staring out over the Alaskan wilderness. And then later he says, I might not go back. And you get the sense that here's a man who, because he's had a lack of imagination has put his skill set to use in a world that has gotten him these things that he covets his money and his wife, but that he doesn't actually have that. They don't, he, he, they leave him empty because he knows that his wife doesn't love him. Mm Mm-hmm. At least, like, not like that. Like, you get the sense that she does care for him, but she obviously is cheating on him with Bob. And I don't, there's, you know, talking about that mythic element, uh, there's, this clearly has a lot of the Odyssey in it, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. About, about a man lost, you know, lost on a journey, uh, traveling back. He has to go through a series of tests and trials uh, to a wife, to an unfaithful wife, like in the Odyssey. Um, yep. And in this case, unlike the Odyssey, uh, you know, you don't get the sense that it's they're going to necessarily mend that marriage. Um, but, you know, there's the Tennyson poem of the Odyssey, which at the end of that has Odysseus going back out into the unknown. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you get the sense in this movie that that's what Charles is going to do. Like, he he's not returning to go back to his old life. Like, he's there. He, he survives. He sees his wife. He breaks it off with her. He tells 
the, the news reporters that the, the other two men, his friends died saving his life, uh, which is just such a great weird ending because it's clearly not what happened, but it, in a way it is like they mm-hmm. did save his life, not physically, but like on a different level. You really get the sense that this man is going, he's giving everything up after this and he is going back into the wilderness uh, for as much as it like was such a harrowing experience for him. That's where he knows he's meant to be. And that's, that's what he is, you know, going to return to. Well, and that's where he finds the thing that he's been missing his entire life, which is his own humanity and his own sort of connection to other people, like a real visceral connection to a person. So much so that in spite of transgressions on Bob's part, he still wants to save him. And so, yeah, I I actually love the line at the end because you do get the sense that he is it's he means it on 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 multiple levels that they sort of saved him from himself uh and help him helped him find a part of him that he was missing and i think even that's you know the we we i sort of took his exchange with the um the caretaker uh when he comes back from being rescued and he hops off the plane and he you know he has the the reversal of you know well, why is the rabbit unafraid? And then the caretaker answers as, as Charles once did in the beginning. Why is the rabbit unafraid? Because he's smarter than the panther. I took that as an indicator that he, it, that he, as you said, is going to go back out into the wild. Mm-hmm. He sort of looks at the caretaker with this, you know, sort of knowing glance and the caretaker looks at him with a knowing glance that to me felt like they were acknowledging something between each other. Yeah. The caretaker is an interesting character because it's like Charles, like you can tell he starts hitting it off with the guy and, you know, they find in each other, like a kind of like, Oh, these two guys can be friends. Like they should, they have some shared interest. The caretaker is surprised by Charles's knowledge of, you know, wilderness and like, you know stuff like that but uh he clearly like is interested in talking to him about like what he wants to do with his plan and charles immediately now suspects that he's making a pitch and the audience is kind of left to wonder like well was he he might be like he might be making a pitch but the way that charles reacts to it clearly offends the caretaker and they he leaves like the the reason that he goes on the plane trip is because he doesn't want to stick around because he's uncomfortable now around the caretaker so mm-hmm. for them to have that ex- that knowing exchange at the end where Charles is now like, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer the like suspicious man I was before and the caretaker seeing him as like, yeah, I knew you could survive it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think it's just such a like nice, lovely little moment uh, there that, that carries a lot of emotional weight. I'm curious, Zach, if you have any feelings uh, on, on the bear, <laughs> um, you know, I, we should say... First and foremost, too, that uh, apart from, you know, some some incredible performances by the human actors, the bear puts on a hell of a show. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is quite a, an excellent actor of a bear who gets top billing in the in the final credits. Yeah. But I, I wonder if Mamet might might balk it at uh, trying to, to explain the the inclusion of the bear and, and this threat to uh, to safety and, and to life as as anything of like a specter of something else you know like or 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 if it literally is just a bear mm-hmm. <laughs> and i you know just just putting it up against sort of this this very preternatural uh, and incarnate sort of like wild 
violence and 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 predatory kind of thing. And uh, I wonder if, if it's thinking too much to think that it's representative of something beyond that within within this sort of mythic tale. Yeah, um, I think first off, just about the bear, which is Bart the Bear, very famous movie bear. Um, probably, <laughs> the, the, most the most famous movie bear. bear. <laughs> uh, who Hopkins had worked with before um, on right. Legends of the Fall, which is another right. another bear fighting movie uh, that I loved as a kid and had not, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have not seen that movie in 20 years, probably 25 years. Uh, I should go back and revisit that. But uh, I think that uh, the bear is the actual star of the movie. Um, I think I think Bart the Bear should have got an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Um, <laughs> it is an amazing, amazing just what they do with that that bear. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the expressions that it gets across are so terrifying, especially because it's not like growling the whole time. It has this weird droopy like snorting mm-hmm. because it is so much scarier than if it were just like up on its hind legs roaring. And yeah, as you mentioned earlier, just... The, the 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 attacks the bear attacks in the movie are so visceral and so upsetting and it's such a good use of the real bear and then special effects uh it's just it's just fantastic all around um when the revenant came out a few years ago and everyone was losing their mind for that like i i, I remember just being like this should have been the praise that you heaped on the edge because the edge does a better bear attack and it does a better bear performance and it does it without all of the self righteous self like loving fucking pretension of that movie yes uh it's it's such a better movie about kind of the same things but uh as far as what the bear represents uh i definitely think mamet would say it doesn't represent anything it is a it's it's just a bear but you know i think uh you need that you need that in there because if it's just about guys trying to get back against the wilderness and not starve to death uh, you know, not freeze to death. Like, that's not enough uh, mm-hmm. for this type of a mythic quest. There needs to be an adversary. There needs to be a force that it needs. To, and also, like, it's it's very much about Charles needs to kill a thing. Uh, not mm-hmm. just a matter of survival. It's, it's, it's very much like the battle of nature. And for that to happen, Charles needs to defeat something and not just survive. He he needs to go through that rite of passage. And you know, rites of passage are a big theme in this movie. The, the centerpiece of this movie is a hundred percent the what one man can do, another man can do speech. You want to die out here, huh? Well, then die. I tell you what, I'm not gonna die. No, sorry, I'm not gonna die. I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. Say I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. I'm going to kill the bear. Say it again. I'm going to kill the bear. And again. I'm going to kill the bear. Good. What one man can do, another can do. What one man can do, another can do. Say it again. What one man can do, another can do. And again. What one man can do, another can do. Yeah, you're goddamn right. Today, I'm gonna kill the motherfucker. Right, like that, and that to me is like, that. that is the most memorable moment in the movie. I think uh, if you talk to people who are familiar with this movie, that's the moment that they're gonna quote first. It's such a good speech. Uh, yeah, for my money, it's the best movie speech ever. Um, 
uh, I would argue for that because it is, it's just such an emotional, it builds so emotionally. And when him and Baldwin are yelling back at each other, you know, what one man can do, another can do. It's not only like inspiring because of all the momentum that's built up into it, but it's, 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 it's a true thing, which I think is important. Like you take any speech at like a halftime, you know, coach giving a speech at halftime when the team is down by whatever in, in, in a sports movie or, you know, the speech that like a general gives, you know, before the big battle and like a historical drama or a Marvel movie or whatever. And it's like, yeah, these are all good. Sure. Whatever. But like, you're not going to be at halftime. <laughs> Again, you're not going to be standing next to Captain America about to fight a thing. You're probably not going to be lost in the wilderness either. But of all of those three things, that's the one that might happen to you. Right. Um, and beyond that, like, you know, with the just saying it's it's true what he says. If one person can do this thing, then you can do it. What one person can do means that it's doable. And you know that I think is a thing that uh, is 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 very much in keeping with what Mamet's trying to say about everything else in here. Like, it's not your money, and it's not your uh, status that matters at the end of the day. It's are you willing to do this thing that can be done. Um, and I think to that end, uh, you know, it's, it's very important that he mentions like boys in Africa would write a passage as they'd walk up to a lion and slap it in the face. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, native American boys would do the same with bears. So, you know, if, if like these used to be the rites of passage just for men and now me, a, a reclusive nerdy, uh, stock market billionaire and you a you know scuzzy fashion photographer like <laughs> now we have to like follow the lead of what boys used to do and this should have been our rite of passage but it wasn't but it's not too late to make up for it and you know obviously that that is a very you know masculine idea uh, that a lot of people will scoff at and I'm not saying is the thing that we should aspire to but in the context of that move of this movie and this type of a story, I do think that it, it it carries with it a certain weight that you need for for a survivalist story to to reach a, a mythic proportion, which this one does. Also, that speech is so good because it's it, it, it ends on the perfect line, which is which is of all people, Anthony Hopkins saying, <laughs> I'm, saying I'm gonna kill the motherfucker. Like, not even motherfucker motherfucker <laughs> oh, and he, he nails it nails it kills it kills it that speech is is uh incredibly rousing even even around a, a film that you know sort of seems to be at, at once you know kind of sitting in this idea of of modern or of, of a very classical sort of mythic masculinity but also sort of satirizing it in a couple of ways and showing sort of the 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 trajectory of of manhood over over several eras that moment is just like it, it you're right it's it's as 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 rousing as as just like riveting as any other big kind of like pep talk speech and in spite of yourself you have that moment of like yes a anthony i'm with you let's go kill the motherfucker <laughs> like that's motherfucker i should say yeah <laughs> and um yeah you're right it, it's a an excellent part of the film um that leads into again one of those really thrilling bear fight sequences where they get just incredible incredible work out of out of bart mm -hmm. 
Yeah, Bart steals the show. I'm so glad you brought up The Revenant, Zach, because I found myself in watching this movie thinking that at every turn. I was like, this is doing so much more than what The Revenant did. And it's do it's like the the thing that I found um I think so arresting and so visceral about those bear scenes is it doesn't flinch or shy away from showing you sort of the stuntmen, but mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, the characters pushed up against the the bear itself. Yeah. It doesn't doesn't have a lot of like trick photography and trick angles in there. There's some of that to to give the sense of certain certain things happening over a shorter distance than is actually the case. But for the most part, it it pushes in right on all of the action and gets 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 you right in the face of the bear. And I just kept thinking, like, there's no way we would ever be this courageous with any of these scenes in today's films. This would all be done with CGI. Um, And I just was so I was so taken by how how unafraid the movie was to really go there with um, with the bear. And I found it just to be extremely effective. Yeah, I think one thing, one one uh, part of this movie that ne- you never really hear get credit uh, credited and deserves a ton of credit is the stunt work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just true. that's just true of stuntmen uh, in general. They really need to add that category to the Oscars um, already because uh, you know your movie kind of lives an action movie lives and dies by its its stunt work, and the stunt work in this is just top notch. Uh, they do really good jobs of doubling Baldwin and Hopkins. Uh, they do. It's, it's, it's to the point where you're like at times only noticing it because it does look so much like them, which, you know, is a thing that can, that, that is noticeable in other types of movies where it's, it's clearly a, a stunt double. Uh, this one, it's seamless. It's great. And, you know, to go back to the Revenant again, um, you know, that bear attack scene in there, the effects are impressive because it's not CGI. So, you know, credit to them for a, a good bear effect. But that scene is so showy that you notice the thing you remember about that scene isn't the violence of the bear. It's the fact that the camera never breaks. There's no cuts, or at least there's the, the, the cuts are hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not watching uh, uh, an effective bear attack. You're watching an effective, you know, camera trick. And it's not <laughs> because you notice it. Uh, right. In this, it's like, there's no, there's no, he's not doing anything fancy. The cuts are all there intentionally to 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 give the thing a seamless flow, but he's 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 not doing any. Tamahori isn't doing anything showy here, and that makes it so much more effective and so much more brutal and terrifying. That yeah, it just to me it's like a world of difference. Uh, yeah. Also, yeah, I want to you know I want to say that Tamahori was the perfect guy for this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Mamet is is a doesn't get credit for being a pretty good visualist director. He's never showy. But there are compositions in some of his films that are, you know, especially something like House of Games is really effective moodiness. All of his movies do have a stagey quality to them. Um, he's never been able to, like, get over that. But I think it kind of adds to just the – everything about a Mammoth movie is kind of stagey. You know, like, <laughs> the dialogue is, is already mm-hmm. have that. He's such a weird director of actors. I love the style of acting that comes in a Mammoth movie, but it, that's probably the thing that puts most people off of mm-hmm. them. If, 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 if it doesn't, if they're not, they don't connect to it. Uh, but that being said, I do think Mamet is a good director. And I think in the last, over the last couple movies he made, all of which are action oriented, Spartan, Heist, Red Belt, 
he became a good director of action, um, mm. solid action, like not not anything outstanding, but like just solid two fisted types of action that uh, I appreciate. And I like that being said, he would not have been a good fit as a director for this. It <laughs> requires a viscerality to it that he, he has never shown, whereas Tomahori is, you know, I'm, I'm if anything, I'm disappointed that Tomahori never really did follow this up with anything on this level again. Like he made maybe the silliest Bond movie of yes, yeah. <laughs> he did. Some more ones. And look, I'll say this: Die Another Day is not a good movie, but I would take Die Another Day over most of the Craig movies because I prefer James Bond to at least be. I I think there is a there is a uh, a happy middle, and something like Casino Royale finds it mm-hmm. perfectly. But uh, mm-hmm. all that Skyfall is a better movie. Like, if you ask me which one I'd rather watch today, I'd rather watch Die Another Day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that doesn't, that's not to take it away from But I, I do wish that uh, we had gotten a Bond movie that had a little bit more of the edge in it mm-hmm. than, what, than what he did. And then after that, I'm, I'm not really too familiar with his, his work post, post that. Yeah, well, he didn't really do much after that. I, you know, I, I guess there was like a, a Nicolas Cage vehicle called mm-hmm. Next that I, I feel like I, I remember at least sort of like the 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 trailer or the the aesthetic of the the poster for. He did the uh, the sequel to Triple X that had Ice Cube in it. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. um, but probably the, the I think the best work he did outside of The Edge, Tamahori, is uh, an episode of The Sopranos. He directed maybe one of like the the sort of like high watermarks at the at the early part of the series in at the beginning of season two, um, where we're first introduced to uh, Richie April, and uh, it's the same episode where he like runs Beansy over with his car. Oh. <laughs> I did not realize that that he directed that episode. Wow. Yeah, that is a very good memorable episode, and that scene is a very brutal good. It's so brutal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm surprised. I was hoping you were going to say he directed the the episode where they're lost in the wilderness looking for the work. <laughs> no, that was Bush- Buscemi, I think, unfortunately. Yeah, that was Buscemi. Yes, that was. You're right. That, that, is a, that is a great episode that would make for a very good double feature with The Edge. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we might have to do that. Do, do The Edge followed by Pine Barrens. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you're right. Like in, in that episode of The Sopranos, along with the, the action that he directs in this film, there is sort of this like sort of exacting quality to it and this like kind of percussiveness of it where part of the appeal is is in the the way that he edits and the way that he sort of articulates this this series of of cuts and this series of angles as opposed to just like a one big continuous thing to show off uh their their capacity with with cinematography you know i i think specifically of when uh when the the doomed harold perino character um is getting attacked and we sort of like, you know, we see him flailing in, in the the maw of this beast. And then we cut to the horrified kind of look that uh, that Hopkins is giving. And then when we cut back, we're like right in on his leg wound, which mm-hmm. has been just like sort of torn open. Like it looks like yeah. a crater. And it's just like this really jarring visceral moment where not not seeing the actual uh, carnage and not not seeing the actual act of him being torn apart and simply seeing the aftermath of it makes it all the more brutal because we're almost we're, we're one step behind the filmmaker and 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 the editor as well in in terms of trying to orient ourselves in this very cathartic place. Yeah, this movie has uh, a couple wound close-ups that are 
really effective and like they're quick enough that you don't really remember this as a particularly gory movie but like the scene yeah the scene of 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 his leg wound during the bear attack the scene of his leg wound before that when he dooms himself by accidentally slicing his leg with a knife while carving a spear yeah. um and the close up of that just the way that like the gut the blood spurts out of that and then later when when uh Baldwin gets it by falling into the bear trap uh and he has to tighten the belt around his leg and then he loosens it for a second <laughs> this spurt of blood just oh, yeah. it back. it's so effective it is um and yeah I, I don't know like you just that's the type of stuff in movies these days that you just never see even in horror movies um you know and God, to me the biggest uh the 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 greatest tragedy travesty of modern day filmmaking is cgi blood um <laughs> yes I, it, it just it doesn't make sense to me why we have allowed that to happen i can't imagine <laughs> it, i can't imagine it's cost effective it looks like crap and it takes away from those types of moments which if like me you appreciate a little blood and gore in your movies every now and then uh are just so essential for making a movie like this memorable mm-hmm. yep bring back the squib that's all that's all we yeah. ask for <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't want to. I don't want to beat this to a pulp. Speaking of gore, um, but you you had me thinking, Zach, as you were talking about that tremendous speech at sort of the apex of the film, um, where we are really getting a clear vision of this idea of you know uh, a man's sort of potential and uh, what he can be capable of. And I found it to be, and I, I wonder what what your guys' take on this is. Um, I might be reading too much into this, but you know, situating this in the '90s, squarely in the '90s, I I found it to be a almost a perversion, but still some sort of garbled version of meritocracy. Where you know, he, he, he there's another line in the movie where he says like oh, just because you're lost doesn't mean you say that your compass is broken. And it's kind of this idea of like, you got to keep going. Like just because times are hard or, you know, you're, you've lost your job, like you've got to, you've got to buck up and like do your best and, and then you'll make it eventually. Like it, I found this movie to be sort of steeped in that, that the, the sort of like, juice that we were all swimming in in the 90s where that was the story we were being told and i found that to be the case particularly in that speech where i i it i just read it as um an indictment of you know the oh woe is me mentality the sort of same like Mm -hmm. uh derision of of the welfare queen and all that and it's like no it's about it's about perseverance it's about hard work Mm -hmm. And that's how you that's how you make it in this world. And if you're not willing to do that, well, then you don't really get to survive. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely think that that is 100 uh, percent, you know, Mamet's thinking and his morality on screen there uh, coming through in that line. Uh, I do find it interesting that, you know, he 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 puts the, he, he makes the character that has to hear that, uh, you know, not a, not not a not a, he makes him a rich white guy. Right. <laughs> All that Alec Baldwin hates, like the elites, which is another thing, like that you get from Mamet. Mamet has been a very rich man for a very long time. Mm-hmm. All of his movies, he is, contain a just hard hatred of elitists. Yep. Like, like 
And that partly, you know, I think goes to explain how he gets taken in by someone like Donald Trump, who, mm-hmm. despite being a billionaire and born with a silver spoon in his mouth and all the other things he is, effectively played to the idea of Amer- the American success story while also railing against the elite. 1,000%. Yeah. Which, you know, is, is effective because there is a truth to it that I think everyone across the political spectrum now recognizes um in you know whether you are a right winger like mamet whether you are a you know socialist or an anarchist or whatever i think the one thing that they do all have in common is hate elitists um and you know mamet is a guy that's interesting in this because he was kind of writing about like the idea of the epstein type world the the weinsteins for a long Mm -hmm. time in his in his work you see Mm -hmm. that very like it's it's very much a part of something like state in maine of uh wag the dog of spartan you know and and when he came out with a play about harvey weinstein uh right after you know during right at the height of the me too movement he got a lot of flack for that and he got bad reviews for it i haven't seen it i haven't read it so i can't speak to its quality but i did think that while it was understandable that people would be like not now dude we do not want to hear david (laughs) mamet's take on weinstein i do you think that that is not really fair considering that like he's been taking you know a look at this thing and this stance and figures like this for a long time now when other people weren't i get that he is a provocateur i get that i have seen oleana uh i have you know mm-hmm. read his interviews and seen his interviews i get that um but he is also does have a pretty clear moral stance on this stuff uh, that he was taking when, you know, other people weren't. And I just, this is all just to say that like, when, when it comes to, to the edge, uh, that, that, that sense of like, you know, oh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go do the thing. That has to be told to a guy who hates elitists, but is a rich white guy. Mm-hmm. Bob is not a poor man. Bob is not, Bob is not Steven even, who is, you know, his, 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 you know, well-to-do assistant who, you know, I do think that there's something interesting there of, you know, the fact that Harold Perrineau is a black man that they cast in that role. Um, I have seen that character used as an example of, you know, the black guy dies first trope as well as the, mm-hmm. like, oh, let's show the black guy getting like horrifically maimed. Um, and I can see why people would say that. Uh, it certainly is an example that you could use for that. I, I, I don't necessarily read any uh, intentionality behind that, but that itself, you know, is, is maybe an issue. It's a good role. I think Perrineau makes memorable and tragic. Like that is a tragic character. That is not just, uh, you know, Oh, have the black guy get killed. And then no one remembers him. Like that death lingers over it. And the fact that Steven is such a like decent character and good natured, I, I think Perrineau also is a fantastic actor who makes the most of that role. Uh, yeah. You know, it's not him being told that by Charles. It's it's Bob. It is the a guy who is I don't know how you can necessarily get more elitist than being a successful fashion photographer. So, you know, I do think that yeah, I think that it's speaking towards an ideal that Mamet and a lot of other people had there, but I think that it's put forth in a way that uh, you know, can be taken as that but can also just be looked at like, well, you do honestly, I mean, life is hard and you at sometimes do have to pull yourselves up. Uh, and you know, that can be a thing that is manipulated by political ideology as Mm -hmm. a way to, you know, overlook systemic inequalities and to cast blame on people and then make villainize people. But it is also a thing that is on its own true of life. 
Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, so often on the left, we talk about the the tragedy in a rightward slide when it's like you're 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 there's something there that you're responding to right this this animus around a, a, a populism that feels true um and it's why as you said someone like a donald trump could be so convincing but but yeah aaron and i were talking about that this morning we were talking about mammoth's own political arc that you know it's it's uh, a shame that you see you you see that arc lean towards the right as frequently as you do because there is a, a truth to this distrust of the pol- the politeness and the elitism and um, and cancel culture and all of that and you know it's seventy years of red scare propaganda and <laughs> smashing out any sort of uh, any sort of animation on the left that um, I think prevents more people from going the other way but there's still there's still that energy around a mistrust for that, that I think a lot of people can relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I saw briefly a, an interview with Mamet. It may have even been on Newsmax. And this was, you know, like probably like at the end of the Obama era. So before it became kind of like uh, sort of this uh, perennial, uh, you know, Trump apologia that, that it is now, um, but but still, you know, very much a conservative right wing kind of, kind of media outlet and him talking about, uh, you know, h- him deriving a lot of his personal politics and his transformation over the years from uh, that, you know, self-proclaimed brain dead liberal into something more of a conservative uh, being influenced by, by writers like Thomas Sowell and Hayek and, and Milton Friedman, you know, all of these people who have deep ties to uh, sort of like an, an economic, very laissez-faire free market capitalism. And I think that Mamet largely escapes, you know, some of the more, uh, derisive and and more maybe toxic to to use a, a word that I know we want to stay away from maybe but um, kind of kind of implication of those ideas of personal responsibility purely because I think he focuses so much of the lessons learned on himself and people like him mm-hmm. um, you know he's he he seems disinterested in in uh, projecting that same idea of personal responsibility onto oppressed populations and uses it more almost like a pep talk you know the same way that we see. Uh, Hopkins delivering his what one man can do speech in, in the middle of this film. So, I, you know, there's maybe something a little bit egotistical about it, but also I think it liberates a lot of Mamet's work from being uh, what what some may find as, as more overtly kind of dismissive of those uh, systemic inequalities that you mentioned, mm-hmm. Zach, and into a place that's more about kind of this... Um, almost like personal self-help kind yeah. of kind of space of, of wanting to, to better himself and, uh, and transcend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, I think you had mentioned earlier that like some, some people have, 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 you know, noted on like the Randianness of this movie of the edge. I saw somebody call it the fountainhead in the woods or like the fountainhead meets what's the Robert Redford movie where he's in the woods. Um, I can't remember. Uh, but you know, uh, that's that's sure that's that's I can see why people would say that it, it it's but I would just argue that like the thing about Rand when people bring her up as like you know it she would be more tolerable one if she were a good writer that is always, <laughs> right. always, yeah. always been the thing of me it's like I, I I I can read a work of literature that I strenuously disagree with or find even morally repugnant and still get something out of it 
or still admire it or even really love it. Uh, if the writing is good, uh, that's the case with a lot of Mamet's stuff. Although, like like you said, I don't think he, in most of his like movie work at least, ever goes full into like uh, making it so overt uh, the politics that that it ever like Rand does. But that being said, if she was as good a writer as Mamet, that I you know wouldn't have a problem. That being said, when people compare The Edge to The Fountainhead, I don't necessarily see that as a detriment because the movie The Fountainhead is really good. <laughs> it's total nonsense it, it, it's it's a completely insane script uh it 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 takes a real nosedive in the third out of the third uh act when it turns into a boring courtroom drama <laughs> that movie by king vidor is a it's a really entertaining movie and mm. you know it's the type of story that like has been recalibrated in other stories a man who you know builds a work by staying true to his vision and then the forces around him, societal forces uh, want to take that down. So instead of acquiescing to their vision and conforming to it, he blows the thing up. I, that's a good, that's a good premise for a story. And it's, yes, it is based in like a conservative ideology, but also it doesn't necessarily need to be tied to that. Like individual individualism and individuality is a thing that the right has kind of taken, uh, you know, for themselves and that the left often dismisses, but there's something that is very archetypal about it that I think extends beyond our idea of politics. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something that I think Mamet is tapping into here. Uh, and that's what makes it effective on its own, regardless of however, you know, much it does betray his economic policies or anything else like that. Yeah. We are running a little long here, but uh, Carly did mention it earlier, Zach, and it, it just feels timely and and maybe uh, you know germane to the conversation today. But you you recently bumped up against on Twitter some uh, some stands of a, of a particular billionaire after writing a pretty scathing review of uh, of his uh, appearance on on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Did you want to share any of your your experiences with that? It wasn't even scathing. It was just like <laughs> observing facts. Yeah. Um- <laughs> Yeah, well, I would say first off that like it's just if 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 you run up against that with anyone, I honestly I'm I don't know which was more furious uh, against me, the reaction to that or from Musk's stand. So I I, I cover SNL for the Guardian. Uh, I've been covering it for the last three seasons. Uh, obviously, Elon Musk just hosted. Um, I did give it a very negative review. Um, I was upfront in it saying like I expect this to be bad. Mm-hmm. I have a very personal distaste of Elon Musk, uh, but that's not the reason I expected it to be bad. I expected it to be bad for two reasons. One, he is not an entertainer, and anytime mm-hmm. they get non-entertainers, it's bad. Yep. Uh, there is a moral issue at hand, too, um, mm-hmm. that was there with you know him. It was there with Trump. It was there with when Steve Forbes hosted it. Uh, I think our mutual uh, acquaintance, Jesse Hawkins, um, I was just listening to his podcast where he was covering it, and he mentioned that, like, you know, you can see SNL kind of becoming like a playground for the idle rich in the future. Like yes. a status symbol, um, you know, that, that, that rich people, oh, I hosted an SNL. I think that's very true, but it makes for very bad episodes. It also makes for usually bad episodes when athletes host too. For mm-hmm. the same reason. Peyton Manning acquitted himself well, but, you know, I covered J.J. Watts a while ago and, you know, it wasn't good. He, he's silted and stiff. That being said, Musk was particularly bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know he mentioned he had Asperger, so that you know, you know that, that that can you know kind of explain some of his awkwardness, but it doesn't explain all of it. And 
the way that they built that show around him uh, was just pitiful. And it was so self-absorbed. And one of the reasons I knew it would be bad is because I've seen Musk act before. We all have. You know, I've seen the clip of him on The Simpsons. I've seen the clip of him on Rick and Morty. He's not good. So right. why would we expect him to be good? He's not good recording a voice for an animated show. Why would we expect <laughs> him to be good in, on a live watch comedy show? That being said, uh, I was more negative, I think, towards the show than him because his mm-hmm. madness just highlighted how bad everything else was. Like He's not noticeably worse in that Gen Z hospital sketch than Bao and Yang is, for example, or than right. Kenan is. Like, I, I, he's not. He's, 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 he is worse, but he's not that much worse. So it was funny to see the, the Musk people come out and, you know, I'm, you know, liberal bias or I'm an idiot or, you know, I, people were saying that I was, you know, mean to his mental health, which I wasn't. Uh, but, you know, like, it's, it's really like, I'm sorry, like, keep pretending that you weren't horribly humiliated for your guy when he was dressed as Wario. But, <laughs> you know, that being said, I will just say uh, a couple weeks before that, I merely referenced a joke that one of the hosts made surrounding the Royal family stuff. Uh, and in my reference of it, I referred to it as, you know, he, he references the, the Meghan Markle drama, not Meghan Markle's drama, just the drama surrounding her. And I got maybe more stuff from Meghan Markle stands, uh, and more vicious stuff from them than I, than I think I did the Musk people. So, and that wasn't even me making of any sort of comment or value judgment or anything like that on, on her. It was just, they, they didn't, they read that they, they, they did the most bad faith reading possible of, of a line. And then when I doubled down saying, I don't care about any of this, then they, they said you know, they were angry because I should care about it. And I should yeah. so, <laughs> yep. more than even Musk. It's just a Stan culture thing yeah. uh, that is a very... It's it's a very it's one of our more unhealthy uh, aspects of our of our society these days and and particularly social media. But yes, uh, that, that was my experience with that. Uh, I would much rather see Anthony Hopkins in character from The Edge hosting SNL. Uh, yes, please. <laughs> yes. I, I was just going to say, you know, I, the fact that 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 stand culture element is is not here and, and maybe not even developed yet. When we're when we're seeing a character like Charles Morse on screen surviving the elements is. Uh, is certainly for the better um, yeah. because it's it's a it's a thrilling ride from start to finish. Again, the the, the film is The Edge, directed by Lee Tamahori, written by David Mamet. Uh, watch it; it's terrific. If you've listened to this whole thing and haven't watched it, shame on you. You should have, <laughs> um, and and now you know a lot of the plot. Um, but Zach Vasquez, thank you so much for being here today. Um, you've been fantastic. Thank you for having me. This has been a blast. As always, you can follow us at uh, Hit Factory Pod. Be sure to subscribe at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda. Thanks, everyone.